I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on Dementia Matters is Dr. Ryan Powell, a health services research scientist at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Powell is interested in improving the ways in which research is developed, interpreted, and used to inform key healthcare decisions. In a recent study, Dr. Powell and his co-authors found people in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods may face greater odds of developing Alzheimer's disease-related brain changes. Welcome to Dementia Matters. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I'd love the show. I'm excited to be here. Well, I love that you said it, and I didn't ask you to say it, so thank you. (laughs) Uh, Now, your recent publication, Association of Neighborhood-Level Disadvantage with Alzheimer's Disease Neuropathology, is the first of its kind to link neighborhood disadvantage to brain tissue markers associated with Alzheimer's disease. So this is an incredible finding. But before we actually dive into what it means, let's start by explaining a few key concepts to our listeners. Neighborhood-level disadvantage addresses a concept called social determinants of health. So to begin, what are social determinants of health? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of one of those um, buzzwords that's used kind of in the research community. Um, They're essentially just, they're conditions in your daily life that impact your health. Um, that's super broad, but it, we're, what we're talking about is the context here in which somebody lives. So you can think about it, for example, some examples would be um, economic stability. So, so things, um, conditions related to income or employment or even some cascading um, things related to it. So if you think about access to affordable health care, um, talking about things related to education, for example, or um, if you just kind of take your daily life, where do you live? What's your neighborhood look like? So what's the, the safety around your neighborhood? What's, um, do you have access to healthy foods within the neighborhood? What's the transportation system look like around your neighborhood? Are you able to get to, uh, to, a, to your doctor? Um, or do you have to walk, you know, a half mile and then take a train or take a bus or something? Um, so it's really all these conditions that are kind of going around in your whole life. So where you live, where you work, where you do, um, Things for fun. So you think about things related to fun would be like um, access to parks and green space, those types of things. So it's it's a pretty broad term to, to uh, really talk about um, the context in which people are living their lives. I really like your answer because you're right about context, really. It's about explaining not just health, because I mean, that's what's misleading is social determinants of health. You just assume, oh, this is about high blood pressure cholesterol issues, things that might increase risk for cancer. But it's more than that. It really encompasses all those other things that you mentioned that perhaps we take for granted and don't consider in our overall health. And so I guess, you know, one of the the other concepts that you use in this paper and in your research is this tool to measure neighborhood level disadvantage. And you you call this tool the Area Deprivation Index. And now for our regular listeners, and I hope there's many out there, this was discussed in detail in a recent interview that we did with another Wisconsin scientist, one of your colleagues, who studies Alzheimer's disease. So this is Dr. Jack Hunt. For those that didn't listen yet, you know, will you explain to us this area deprivation index? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, it's just one way of capturing some of these social determinants of health um, at a neighborhood level. So this measure, the area deprivation index, reflects um, 17 factors, and they're around income, education, employment, and housing at a very, very precise neighborhood level. We're talking, um, technically speaking, we're talking at the um, census block group level. So to put it in contrast, we're talking about over the U.S., about seven, over 7 million neighborhoods that we can look at. Um, contrasted to, if you think about where typically most of these uh, geographic variations analyses look at are, are at the county level, the county level is around 3,000. So you can kind of see the precision that it's, that it's getting at. Um, and so it's a ranked index, so it ranks from least disadvantaged to the most disadvantaged. Um, we, the data that we use comes from the U.S. Um, Census Survey, and for more recent years, it comes from the American Community Survey. Um, some other aspects would be that it's NIH funded. It's, oh, this is a big one. It's freely available to anyone. We have it online. You guys, uh, the listeners uh, uh, can do a web search for it. Um, you can check it out. It's If you type in University of Wisconsin Neighborhood Atlas, you can um, take a look at the features that it has. So you can even use your phone. You can look up any neighborhood in the U.S. and it can tell you kind of the relative rankings of those neighborhoods. Um, and you can get an idea if you look at your own neighborhood to kind of understand what the, the geographic precision that it's at. Um, and so we use this tool in research. We've used it with, uh, for example, um, to look at hippocampal volume and Dr. Jack Hunt's study and other types of brain health. But we've used it as well um, across a variety of different research topics, a lot um, around um, healthcare quality and outcomes, but the tool can be applied beyond research. Um, it can be really used by anybody in the community. So it's freely available. You can download it for free. You can download, if you have a data set, you can link to it. If not, you can look at the maps and you can start thinking about, um, for example, one area would be um, y- you could use it to target outreach efforts to neighborhoods with the greatest need, for example. It's an incredible tool. I've, I've gone on it just to play around and look at it. It's beautifully done, um, and it's pretty easy to use for someone who's not in this technical field. How updated is the information when you talk about, like, the census? Um, like, what, what was the year that you're using um, to create the atlas? Right. So prior to, I believe, 2010, we were doing an update every – we could do an update every 10 years. That's what the census is based on. But now – that the, this type of information is moved to the American Community Survey, we can do an update every year. And so our, our, really our goal is to have a, a new update for each of the years. Oh, wow. That's a, quite a challenge, but also really important because you're going to have really updated information for people That's to right. look at. That's right. And so with the, the, the capabilities of having a, be a ranked index is you can um, compare over time, you can kind of compare backward and forwards. So you can kind of look at exposures over time or changes over time. Okay, so now that we have those concepts explained, you know, what exactly did your study look at using this area deprivation index and neighborhood atlas? So to evaluate brain health, what we're really doing is we're evaluating Alzheimer's disease-related brain changes. And really the definitive way to measure that is at autopsy. So um, a neuropathologist really looking at um, tissue samples and kind of trying to understand the brain-related changes. And kind of the two hallmark um, brain-related changes are the tangles and the plaques. And in this study, we're really looking at 
um, just the, uh, the presence of plaques. And so to evaluate brain health, we looked at 447 brains from across these two centers um, from people who have donated their brains over a span of 25 years, which to me is, is uh, it kind of chokes me up. It's really, it's really amazing. And I'm so grateful um, that we're able to make these new discoveries, um, considering that some of these brains uh, are donated from people that have donated over 25 years ago, um, which is just super. And uh, so really we, we were looking at that, um, the linkage between Alzheimer's disease and neighborhood dep- deprivation, neighborhood disadvantage. And I think it's really important for our listeners to to realize, too, that so many of the studies that come out that are really important and pivotal are using surrogates or markers of Alzheimer's changes. You know, these are um, CSF or cerebral spinal fluid changes and uh, PET scans are advanced technology. But you guys actually looked at the brain tissue. You looked at the most definitive or what we call the gold standard of brain changes related to Alzheimer's disease. And then you compared that or you, you know, you studied that in the context of the area deprivation index to see if there was a correlation or some sort of relationship. That's correct. Yes. And so what did you find? Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting findings from here. So first off, at a really basic level, it's feasible to add this connection to the existing brain bank data. So really, this could apply to any of the brain banks, any of the ADRCs that we have. Um, they can start trying to consider context within their own research, which is, which is a super exciting thought. Um, so sort of we established the feasibility of adding this neighborhood disadvantage connection um, to the existing brain bank data. And then number two is we found an association. So um, as neighborhoods become uh, disadvantaged, the odds of these brain-related changes of someone living in that context increases. And so when you um, compare somebody... Uh, the odds of somebody um, living in the uh, least disadvantaged neighborhoods to the people that are living in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods, the odds of um, having these brain-related changes is about double. Wow. Okay, so two times the increased risk of developing these actual Alzheimer's disease changes in the brain when you're living in the most disadvantaged neighborhood compared to the most advantaged neighborhood. That's right. Yeah. So with this, this is just kind of really just establishing um, an association. There's much more work to be done. We can talk about that really, but um, this is just kind of the initial baby steps here. We're kind of just exploring associations and um, we can talk about some of the things that we can do in the future to kind of really understand what's driving this. But at this point, we're just, um, we just can uh, really try to understand the associations between the two. And yeah, I, I appreciate that you're being very clear with your words too, because you're saying association and you're saying the odds or sort of a risk um, to, to these findings, because you're not saying that one is causing the other. But when we think about that, when we think about this relationship, you know, clearly there are, you know, more granular or more specific things that could be causing it. And so I guess I'm wondering how you think social factors that you're looking at with your area deprivation index that you're measuring, how those could potentially interact with the actual brain changes in the human person and and how you think that, you know, those could relate. 
That's right. Yeah. So it's sort of um, we're starting with these associations and the next step really would be to kind of let's try to understand what would be driving um, the relationships kind of from from neighborhoods to neurons, really. So what is the what are the possible factors that could be causing this? And so we know from from other studies looking at amyloid increases in amyloid that they're related to uh, chronic stress, sleep disruption, lifestyle factors such as diet and exercise, um, pollution and cardiovascular disease risks like diabetes. So really the, the next series of steps will be to kind of really try to understand what are the pathways, and there's probably multiple pathways really, um, but really trying to understand how, how it is that this association exists. And now you and your co-authors, you looked at something else in the study. Now through advancing these, through advanced mapping techniques, you discovered that 56% of Americans live within 100 miles of the National Institute on Aging funded Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, like the one here in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. For our listeners out there, there are 32 of these centers across the country. They are all funded through the National Institute for Health, and they all conduct this longitudinal research on Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, where we have participants coming in and staying with us for years, even decades. Now, they collect data in similar ways, and they share this anonymous data with each other, really so that we can work together on this true national strategy to research, understand Alzheimer's disease. Now, why is geographical access to Alzheimer's disease research centers so important in Alzheimer's disease research, and what does the significance of your findings of 56% of Americans, what does that mean for us? Yeah, that's a super question. Thank you for asking that. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the geosimulation really suggests that geographic access is difficult for about half of the country, and it's particularly diff- challenging and difficult um, potentially for those living in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods. And this really mirrors what we found in our brain bank sample that we had. So we had most people living um, within 100 miles, and we, we really um, overrepresented those living in the more affluent areas and really underrepresented those um, who are coming from the most disadvantaged areas. So I, I can speak best from the research perspective. So um, it's really important because it determines who's involved in our research studies. And so uh, down the line, this could be really worrisome if you think about research eventually informing prevention strategies and treatment efforts. And we really don't want to leave anybody out of that process, kind of the process from research to kind of these really tailored treatments. We want everybody to have a seat at the table, so to speak. We want everybody to be represented. Otherwise, any sort of um, treatments or uh, prevention strategies that come out might be less effective for certain populations or certain groups. Um, so it really underscores the need for a continued effort to make diverse participation and geographic access to research centers a priority in our strategy moving forward. And a lot of the, the geosimulation, the map really was just for uh, readers to, to understand and try to get an idea of maybe where efforts could really be diverted um, to think about where maybe some additional outreach can happen across the U.S., yeah, your map is beautiful, and we'll have a link to that in your in your article. And for those that are interested, they should really take a look at it. I mean, we're very fortunate that the National Institute for Health has funded so many centers, but it does show that you know we need to change or adapt and 
and modify our approach to recruit more people or to find ways of reaching people in these more disadvantaged areas. And I think, you know, your study, as well as other studies coming from your group, is showing how we define disadvantaged and underserved. You know, people usually think of an urban setting, but it really is rural settings as well. And it's areas away from cities that are going to need access to, to healthcare, but also access to research. Um, yeah, that's right. And th- there's a lot going on in the field, I should say, to try to address some of these things. I, um, you know, somebody that's really involved in the re- recruitment sciences could probably speak more to that, but um there's really a lot going on, but so this is a known problem and it's a, there's a lot of pe- people, smart people really um, trying to tackle this. And thank goodness for that. And I will say, you know, as a physician going through this COVID situation and trying to improve ways to access my patients, you know, I think our research centers are doing the same thing, considering how can we reach people virtually? Mm-hmm. How can we, uh, you know, speak to them and work with them, even if they're not right physically in front of us? So it's all, it's an exciting time, but research like this really shows the importance of why we need to push forward. And so I guess in that line of thinking, you know, what is the next step for your research and for your research team? Yeah, great question. Thanks for asking it. There's a lot going on. Um, so again, this is just sort of the first baby step. And so for, I think the first thing that's needed from other from other researchers out there is to kind of confirm the finding um, as well as overcome some of the methodological limitations we had. Um, so right now, again, we're just uh, viewing associations at this point. We really don't know what could be driving the association. Um, that's a way ways off. But again, the hope really would be to that similar technology that we used here, the ADI, could be used to explore this pathway from neighborhoods to neurons or social context to basic biology, however you want to put it. Um, so for us, one of the um, next steps is sort of, we know that, that Alzheimer's disease is clearly a life course problem that's happening. So for example, you know, the, the neuropathology, these changes are occurring um, over decades. And so our next approach with neighborhood disadvantages is to try to take on this life course perspective. So what we're doing is we're developing methods that can go um, trace through a person's whole entire life and try to understand um, to what extent they've lived in disadvantaged areas. So you can think about a myriad of questions around it. Are there critical or sensitive periods that are more important than others? Is it um, really about the, the, cumul- the cumulative effect over time? Um, and so Really, this hopefully this inform- this this research can lead to kind of understanding um, really when we really need to start um, um, providing uh, really tailored treatments and prevention strategies, um, and so that's kind of the, the next first step is kind of this life course perspective. Um, another one is sort of we to look to partner with additional brain banks to really start moving forward to to uncovering this causal pathway um, from neighborhood disadvantage to brain-related changes. And so with our study that we just did, um, you could see that, again, the most disadvantaged neighborhoods were underrepresented. Hopefully with um, all of us kind of banding together, we can kind of have the ability to um, understand really the complex pathways that are happening within all these different populations. And at this point, like, so for the um, from the research perspective, it's sort of about an issue of power, sort of how can we slice and dice the data and look at all these different really complex pathways? Um, and with this data that, that we have right now, that for, for the study that we just did, we didn't we weren't able to really do that. And one of the reasons is the the low um, 
the low number of people in the most disadvantaged group, but as well, we don't have additional characteristics that we need to kind of understand um, these pathways. So just, um, you know, information around um, behavioral lifestyle kinds of things, diet and exercise. We don't have any information on uh, cardiovascular risks, for example, or um, some of those types of measures to add that in there to kind of really get a really well-rounded idea of what's going on here. Um, So partnering with brain banks, with with additional brain banks to really start moving forward with this research forward is is, uh, another next step. And that makes a lot of sense, providing more data, more richness to your data as you build the context of this human life course and as, mm-hmm. as it relates to Alzheimer's. So I want to ask you, I want to end by asking you a tough question because I want you to think five, 10 steps down the road for our listeners. And I'm not going to hold you to your answer and we're not <laughs> going to replay this, you know, when the time comes, but <laughs> you know, I want to know as a society, you know, where do we go from here? How can we make changes at the community level to help prevent or slow the development of Alzheimer's disease brain changes? Wow, gosh, that's such a great question. Um, unfortunately, I don't have an answer for that. It's, it's, so right now, there's just so much we don't know. Um, and I wish we were farther along. So it's really difficult to say at this point, unfortunately. Um, from a research perspective, we're, we're just starting. Um, so many, again, many of the underlying reasons that are driving these disparities are, are really unknown. Um, and again, I would really reiterate, I want to reiterate how crucial it is to have this diverse representation in the research. Um, because that's really where any sort of community level um, strategies are going to be developed. And without that diverse participation, any prevention strategies or therapies are probably going to be less effective than they really could be. So um, I'm sorry, I don't have, I don't have a, a, a good answer for that. Um, I wish we were farther along. But hopefully... Um, working together with all the other ADRCs to really try to tackle this problem, we can make some great progress in the next few years. I can appreciate that answer. You 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 didn't you did a nice job of dodging <laughs> it entirely, but also you said you know we need participants, right? We need people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, all socioeconomic statuses, all neighborhoods. That's to right. Participate if they can. So I think that's a good message. I appreciate that, Dr. Powell. And I'd like to thank you for joining me on Dementia Matters. And we do hope to have you on with your future studies. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chen. Really, really had a lot of fun here. Thank you. I'd like to end this episode with a commentary. To say this is an important finding is an understatement. You know, what you, Dr. Powell, Dr. Amy Kind, and the rest of your team are showing is that where we live and how we live has an effect literally in our brains decades and decades later. But this finding can only be shown by the generosity of people being willing to donate their brains to science. It is the ultimate gift to research and an incredible gesture to our future generations. So I'd like to take this moment to sincerely and wholeheartedly thank the participants signed up for brain donation and the family members of those that have donated their brains and other organs to science. Thank you. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center 
combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.